Well, good morning again, church. My name is Brandon. Like I said earlier, I'm one of the pastors here working with youth and families, and uh, it's been a real honor to be able to serve here at OCEC, and we're going to continue our series this morning talking about the life of somebody that is probably rather familiar to many of us, uh, the life of Joseph. Uh, Joseph was a young guy in uh, the book of Genesis, and he was one of 12 brothers. So can, if you can imagine kind of feeling a little bit lost in the shuffle in a large family. Does anybody have like more than five siblings in this room? More than five? Okay, okay, cool. Uh, all right, that's, my dad is one of seven. So I have, uh, I have six aunts and uncles on my dad's side, and I remember growing up when I was, you know, really little, it was one of my favorite tasks to try and just remember everybody's name. Uh, so I can only imagine what Joseph must have been going through with being one of 12. Um, and the story so far goes a little bit like this. Joseph was a young man, 17 years old, and he uh, basically ended up being picked by his dad as the favorite child. How fun is that? <laughs> Wouldn't you love to be the favorite child? But on top of being picked as the favorite child, I mean, we, we know, right? You're not supposed to pick a favorite kid. Um, but Joseph's dad anyway, did that anyway. And what's even worse is Joseph's dad made it very apparent that Joseph was his favorite. He made him a really nice coat, uh, some kind, you know, his Technicolor dream coat, right? Anybody? Um, he made him this really nice, fancy robe that he would put on him and just showed everybody, like, this, this is the model child. This is the kid that you want to be if you're in my family. And Joseph was like, heck yes. Yes, I am. Thank you very much, Dad. I appreciate it. So, uh, so Joseph is kind of like in the situation where he is, you know, he's the favorite. He's, his dad has picked him. And then Joseph has this dream. And this, in this dream... Joseph sees a vision where he, uh, him and his brothers are out in the field and they're picking up sheaves of grain and they're uh, getting ready for the harvest and doing their whole thing. And then uh, the, the sheaf of grain that Joseph had stands up in the middle of the field and all the sheaves that his brothers had, they go and they bow down to his sheaf. And he's like, mm, what do you guys think about that? The imagery is pretty obvious, right? Uh, the, the meaning of this is that Joseph's brothers are going to end up sort of bowing down and paying homage to Joseph. And so Joseph, is, uh, so Joseph tells his brothers this, and they're like, this golden child who already dad is like picked among all of us, and now he's telling us that he's going to be the one that is in charge of everybody else. Oh my goodness, I hate this guy. So the text tells us that they just hated him because of this. And they couldn't speak peaceably to him. And it was a, it was a problem, right? There was some, there was some uh, tension, should we say, between Joseph and his brothers. And Joseph then has another dream. And in this dream, it's a similar kind of a, an idea, except in this case, it's the sun and the moon and the stars, 12 stars, or 11 stars, sorry. And they're all, they're all around Joseph. We're not talking about a, a figurative thing here. We're talking about Joseph himself. And they're all bowing down to Joseph in this dream. So he tells this dream to his brothers and his dad, and uh, his, they get really upset. It's this whole thing, right? They just can't, they can't deal with the fact that Joseph seems to think that not only will his brothers all be bowing down to him, but that his parents will be too. And so at this point, the brothers are like, we got to do something about this guy. So they go out, 
they're in the field, they're tending their, their flock of goats or whatever, whatever they were, goat, sheep, something like that, probably goats. And Jacob, Joseph's dad, sends him out into the field to go check on his brothers and see how they're doing. So he goes out and he finds them. And while he's a long way away, the brothers say, hey, that's our, that's our brother. There's that guy. Now is our chance. Let's kill him. Which is like, well, that escalated very quickly, right? But okay, let's kill him. And then, you know, there's some, there's some conference, you know, there's, there's a conference that happens among the brothers. And one of the brothers, Reuben, is like, well, we shouldn't kill him. I mean, you know, he's our brother, right? We can't, we can't kill our bro. Like, that's no, 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 thanks. So instead, let's just throw him in a pit. Okay, cool. <laughs> okay, seems good. So they do that. They throw him in the pit. The brothers, you know, like, we finally did what we, were, what we wanted to do. We were getting rid of our brother. And kind of in the whole process, they realize and they sort of see an opportunity. And that opportunity is that they can actually, instead of just leaving him for dead, they can make a little bit of money on the side and they can sell him as a slave to some slave traders that are passing by. So that's what happens. Joseph's brothers sell him to a group of slave traders who are on their way through the area. And that's where the story kind of leaves off. We're at this point where Joseph has just had his life, the life that he maybe imagined for himself, the life that he had uh, figured out for himself is totally, totally destroyed. He finds himself at the bottom of a pit in the middle of a desert, and then when he finally gets rescued from the pit, it's into the hands of people who have bought him as property. And they're headed towards a foreign land. So as we pick up in our story, I just want us to kind of like have that context in our minds as we go into this next chapter. So if you have your Bibles with you, you can open up to Genesis chapter 39. I'll give you a moment to turn there. And then we're actually going to read the entire chapter in one go. And then we're going to kind of go back through and, and pick things out of it. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and get them out. Genesis 39. And here's what it says. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food that he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said... Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. 
No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her or near her, is really what the the text is saying here. One day he went into the house to attend his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called to her household servants, Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in prison, and he was made responsible for for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Take a deep breath. (laughs) We just read a lot of scripture. And this is a pretty intense episode, is it not? This is a story that is quite famous. It's one where uh, we see a dynamic between two people where we just know that nothing good is going to come of this. This is not going to be good. And sometimes, here's the thing with with well-known stories in the Bible. The story of Joseph is very well-known in general, right? If you've been around the church for any number of years, you've probably heard of Joseph. You've probably heard of the story that happens right here between Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And what's what's a danger when we know a story so well is sometimes we just kind of like gloss over it because we're like, oh, I get this. You know, I read this in Sunday school or I've known this for a while and I just kind of like move on through, through the text. And we don't slow down enough to actually take the time and place ourselves in this, in this moment and actually feel what the story is trying to get us to feel. So my encouragement for us this morning and what we're going to do is we're going to kind of slow down and we're going to take our time and we're going to walk through this story and we're going to see kind of the ways that this story is meant to affect us as people. But here's the first kind of major point and what we're going to examine first. And here's something that kind of comes out in the text, and we're going to see this. And this, it's this. The Lord was with Joseph, even when his situation said otherwise. The Lord was with Joseph, even if his situation said otherwise. Now think about this for a second. Joseph is in a situation where he has been betrayed by his brothers sold into slavery, marched down into a foreign land that he has no context around himself for. He probably doesn't know the language. 
He doesn't know anything about cultural customs. He has no close relatives, family, friends. He has completely been uprooted from the life that he once knew and has been placed in a situation that is terribly, terribly stressful and that is terribly painful. He's lost his freedom. He's lost his sense of sort of individuality and self. And he's in a situation where it seems like everything has gone wrong. His circumstances would tell him that God wasn't really there, that God doesn't care, that God didn't have his hand on his life. If he just sort of looked at the data, right, and it was just like, okay, this is, this is where I'm at. This is what's going on. Where are you, Lord? This is not, this is not cool. <laughs> he would have probably thought to himself, where is God? Where is God when life does not go the way that I had really envisioned for myself? And to kind of like put this even, you know, point it a little bit more, Joseph is a young man. He's 17 years old at this point. Like, I, I can't imagine in my life at 17 or 18 or whatever, having my life completely derailed and then having to figure out how to deal with that as a person who's just sort of barely entering into adulthood. That's got to be very disorienting. But here's what the text says, and it does something really interesting here. It says this. And Joseph had been taken down into Egypt. We talked about that, right? Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. And look at this. I put these in red because it's significant what the author is doing here. Here's what he says. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And we move on. It says, and when his master saw that the Lord was with him. Okay, interesting. And the Lord gave him success. Oh, and the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. And the blessing of the Lord was on everything that Potiphar had. At this point in the story, this is a huge concentration of instances where the, the name of the Lord is used in the text. So remember, when you see capital L-O-R-D, this is the name of the Lord. This isn't just like calling God the boss. It's saying that this is God's name, his personal name. And the author is going out of his way to tell us that something about Joseph's relationship with God was still on track, even though his life had been completely derailed. The narrator tells us that the Lord was with him, and the Lord was with him in such a way that other people noticed. Look at that. He says, uh, his master noticed, his master saw that the Lord was with him. I don't know exactly what that would have looked like. It was probably something about how, like, when Joseph would, like, do something, kind of like the text says, there would, be, uh, there would be some kind of success out of it. Joseph was really good at somehow making lemonade from lemons, okay? Somehow Joseph had this like way of, of taking situations that were uh, difficult or whatever and turning them into something that was successful. Okay, cool. But Potiphar, Potiphar does not know Yahweh. Potiphar doesn't worship Yahweh. He's an Egyptian. He's like hanging out with all the Egyptian gods, okay? He's got Ra and Seth and all these ever, you know, whatever. And he notices something about the way that Joseph holds himself 
carries himself that tells him that the Lord is, is with him. Something is different about this slave that I have. But notice this too. Joseph is not the one who is singularly responsible for his own success. The Lord is responsible for putting these things together. The author goes out of his way to say the Lord gave him success. God is the one who does this. He's not the, Joseph isn't the one who made it all happen. God is the one who makes it happen. And as a result of Potiphar noticing this and taking, you know, being kind to Joseph and saying, all right, I'm, gonna, I'm going to actually bless you and take you into my home and you're going to have all these responsibilities and all this kind of stuff, the Lord blesses Potiphar's home, his household. This is a, like a direct sort of fulfillment of what God said to Abram in uh, Genesis 12 when he says, I'm going to bless those who bless you. And when God says you to Abram in that moment, he's like, I'm going to bless those who bless you. It's a, you is actually standing in for your family, the people that are going to come after you. I'm going to bless your family if people bless them. God is being faithful to a promise even in the midst of total and complete disaster. That is, that's pretty powerful to me. That there's something about God's character and his ability to fulfill promises, even in the midst of disaster, that he would be willing to bless an Egyptian's family because that Egyptian blessed one of his people. That says something about the kindness of God, about the mercy of God, and about God's ability to fulfill his promises. So even though Joseph's circumstances are vastly different from what he probably imagined in his life. Because think about this. Joseph has just had two dreams at this point, right? He's just had two dreams, and dreams are very, very important. In, uh, in Genesis in particular, there's these moments where characters have dreams, and those dreams are extremely important for the narrative, okay? And Joseph has just had two dreams that have said that his family is going to sort of like bow down and pay homage to him. And that is not happening, He's, he's stuck. He's stuck where he's at. And even though he's had to walk through a significant amount of pain and betrayal and ugliness, the Lord is with him. So think about this. Joseph, now, he's still a slave, but he's got a lot of responsibility and a lot of honor in the household that he's in. He's responsible for a lot. The whole, like basically the affairs of the whole household are all on his shoulders. The text tells us that he didn't, uh, Potiphar didn't really uh, have any concern about anything in his house except for the food that he ate, which is sort of the author's way of telling us like just sort of Potiphar's like personal life, you know, like whether or not I'm going to eat chicken or steak, right? That was on Potiphar, right? He, he's saying, okay, this is, this is what I'm going to be responsible for because I don't have to worry about anything else in my house. Joseph's got it. He's got it figured out. Things, you know, considering the circumstances, things seem like they're going okay at this point until Potiphar's wife enters the story. And there's this shift that happens just as Joseph is feeling like maybe there's some stability in his life, 
Maybe life is not turning out the way that he likes, but at least it's some stability. The rug is going to get completely pulled out from under his feet. So look at what happens next. Potiphar left everything. Okay, we, we, we talked about this, right? We're good. Okay. So here's what he says. Or here's, what, here's the point. The Lord was with Joseph even when he was under tremendous pressure. So here's what the text says. Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he didn't concern himself with anything except the food that he ate, right? Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. Thank you, author, right? Like, Joseph was probably pretty grateful that he put that in there. The author goes out of his way to tell us a little bit about Joseph's looks, his appearance. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. It's pretty abrupt, right? Uh, in, in fact, if you look at this in Hebrew, it's just two words. Come to bed with me. Those are two words. That's it. Just very abrupt. She's, you know, she's to the point. She knows what she wants, okay? But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, has, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though, and here's what I want to highlight, she spoke to Joseph day after day. He refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. The, the idea is that he, would, he wouldn't even kind of like stand next to her in the house. He wouldn't be near her when she was around Day after day, she's speaking to him. Now, I've heard this story taught many times in kind of the youth ministry world. And like 99% of the time, this is a passage that gets talked about when it comes to resisting sexual temptation. It's kind of like how, how we would read this passage in, you know, in, in a lot of different uh, circles. Resisting this temptation, resisting this constant voice that is telling you to do something, to do something, to do something. And the logic goes something like this, okay? Potiphar was a very high-ranking official. He probably, as a very high-ranking official in Egypt, had the ability to sort of like choose for himself his wife, and he probably would have chosen a wife that was conventionally beautiful in the in Egyptian world. She would have had access to the finest perfumes, the best makeup, the best clothes. She would have been able to, you know, have her skincare routine down. Like, her skincare routine was on point, all right? She was probably some kind of social media influencer, right? This was a person, that's kind of what the, the logic is going, all right? She would spend her, you know, she'd spend weekends at the nail salon gossiping with her girlfriends. This was this whole big thing, but listen. All of that is not really there in the text. All of that's kind of a, it's kind of a stretch. It, here's what's notable to me as I read this. First of all, the author goes out of his way to tell us that Joseph was very handsome and very well built, right? Joseph, Joseph never skipped leg day, all right? He knew what he was doing. But the narrator doesn't even tell us Potiphar's wife's name. He doesn't even bother to give her a name. Interesting. 
That's interesting to me. I think what that means, and as we kind of like walk through this story, is that to read this story primarily as Joseph saying no to some kind of really strong sexual temptation is kind of missing the boat a little bit. There is that component. That is there. It does exist. But the moral of the story is not just running away from this temptation, like he really wants to do this, because the, Joseph, the narrator never tells us anything about Joseph's mind, what's going on in his heart. But he does go out of the way to tell us that day after day after day, Potiphar's wife is kind of speaking to Joseph and trying to get him to do this. Here's what I want us to think about for just a second. Joseph was still a slave. He may have had a lot of responsibility in the home. He may have had a lot of, of sort of ranking among the other household servants. Potiphar's wife still had power over him. She was a person who had authority over him. And he doesn't have the ability to get away. He can't get himself out of the situation. And day after day after day, she is pressuring him. Bring that into like a modern context for a second. Can you imagine if there was an authority figure or like a boss or someone in your life who was day after day after day pressuring you into doing something that you knew was not right? That you knew was not okay? that you knew that was outside the boundaries of what you were allowed to do. But this person has power over you, and they're saying, you got to do it. Come on, make it happen. Joseph was under tremendous pressure, and the Lord was with him even when he was under tremendous pressure. The Lord was with Joseph in this moment. We need to think back to what the author has just told us, where he mentions the Lord's name five times in a very short amount of time, in a very short amount of text, saying that the Lord was with him and the Lord did these things and the Lord prospered him and the Lord made him successful. All this other stuff. Now the pressure finally reaches a breaking point because eventually, right, there's like, it's, you know, it's like you're, you have a pressure cooker on the stove and for some reason somebody took the safety valve out of this pressure cooker and just stuck a cork in it or something, all right? Does anybody here can? Like, like, are you a canner? Okay, so we have just like uh, kind of gotten into canning a little bit. We don't have a pressure canner yet, but the pressure canner freaks me out because there's just like this pressure building in this pot on your stove and it's just like, oh my gosh, what is, this is gonna blow up at some point, right? There's this tension. So whenever I'm, you know, working with the pressure canner, like at, like at Maria's mom's house or whatever, um, I get a little bit freaked out because I'm saying, okay, there's this tension in the house now. If I, if I, if I let this go for too long, we're going to have an issue. And we finally do reach a breaking point in the story. It says this. One day, one day, very casual, he went into the house to attend his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me, same two words in Hebrew. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. 
when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house. She called her household servants. Look, she said to them. This Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her. Uh, There we go. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. So the story has reached its breaking point. Potiphar's wife assaulted Joseph. She was not satisfied with just sort of verbal pressure. She decided to take an opportunity to try and make this happen by force. She grabbed him by his cloak. And she, presumably because she was trying to like pull him into some kind of an embrace or whatever, Joseph isn't running away from temptation so much as he's running away from being assaulted. He's running away from a terrible, terrible situation where he is deeply uncomfortable and it's not okay. And he runs away. He gets himself out of there. And then to just add to all of this injustice, because it's very unjust of Potiphar's wife to do this to Joseph in the first place, but then to add to all of this, she makes up a story about what happened. And the logic kind of goes like this. Well, who would ever believe this guy? I'm Potiphar's wife. He's just a slave. I can say whatever I want. And look, I've got the evidence right here. And she can hold up his cloak. Notice the parallel there, by the way. Think about what happened earlier in Joseph's story. They strip off his cloak, throw him in a pit, and then they use the cloak as false evidence to tell somebody a story that didn't actually happen. And the author of this narrative is a master of narrative motif and like uh, narrative patterning. And so what he like highlights is the fact that she took off his cloak and then holds it up and uses it as evidence against him, falsely, in the same way that his brothers did. Life is kind of like a cycle for Joseph right now. He's kind of in a little bit of a a downward spiral. His cloak is stripped off, and then it's used as a false witness. On top of that, look at this progression because I think it's really interesting what she does. If we go back here, she calls to the household servants and is like, something bad happened, blah, and they come, all right? And she says, this Hebrew, this Hebrew person, this man has been brought to us to make sport of us. So it's kind of this broad thing. It's kind of this like uh, general sort of category. But then look what she does when she talks to her husband. She says this, that Hebrew 
slave. She emphasizes his position. And the way that she's doing this is, the reason that she's doing this is presumably to make Potiphar as angry as possible. Look at what has happened with this guy that you brought in. He came to me to make sport of me. She's getting, like, she's emphasizing the personal nature of what it is that she's talking about. But as soon as I screamed, he ran out of the house. Ooh, you know? Potiphar's wife is a piece of work. <laughs> right? Man. But here's the big point. The Lord was with Joseph even in the middle of all this. And the fact that he ran away from a bad situation does not mean he was a coward. It means that he was trying to be faithful to the boundaries that the Lord had set up in his life. He's not a coward. He's running away from something that is going to destroy him. And then, ironically, it ends up destroying him anyway. Now, there's one more thing that I want us to kind of come away with here. The Lord was with Joseph even though he couldn't see the rest of the story yet. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a second. Life was going pretty good, and then all of a sudden it falls apart again. You're falsely accused of attempted rape. You're, you're falsely thrown in prison. You are in a situation where not only now are you a slave in Egypt, but you're a slave in prison in Egypt for a crime you did not commit. If Joseph had just stopped there and had just said, well, this is it. This is my life now. He would have missed the bigger picture. As Joseph is sitting in prison, I think he could have just very easily fallen into complete and utter despair. But he didn't. And here's our big application point for today. If you come away with nothing else from today, come away with this. Don't make the mistake of believing that this one chapter is your whole story. Don't make the mistake of believing that this one chapter is your whole story, because there's more to come. I um, definitely, I enjoy some Netflix, okay, right? And one of my favorite things on Netflix is when a whole series will come out all at once, right? And so I'll be going along, right, you know, watching a series, whatever it is, and then, I'll, you know, Netflix is really good because they're like, your next episode is going to start in 10 seconds, and you're like, well, don't mind if I do, click, okay? But what if I was watching this really intense series, and then all of a sudden, there was this huge cliffhanger at the end, and then I just turned off the TV and went to bed. <laughs> That's it, and I never picked it up again. That would, be, uh, that would be a little bit tough, right? That would be a, a little bit strange for me to do. What if I was, you know, I'm watching like a reality TV. Uh, Maria and I are watching a lot of Top Chef recently. We're really enjoying that. Uh, 
what if we just got to like the last episode, like the finale where they're down to the final three and they're doing their final whatever contest stuff and we just cut it off there and we're like, we're never going to find out the end of this story. Who cares? Let's move on. <laughs> that would be a little bit strange. Think of our lives, think of if we did that in our lives. What if we reached a low point? What if we reached a spot in our life where we're like, this is awful. This is not the way my life was supposed to turn out. This is not how I expected this to be. This is, uh, I, I've come to terms with the fact that maybe this isn't going to be, I'm not going to be able to attain this dream or that dream or this goal or that goal or whatever it is. And I just stopped there and I said, well, that's the end of the story. There's nothing more to it. Or I get to that low point and I say, not only is this the, the, the nothing else is going to happen in my life, but this low point is how my life is going to be for the rest of forever. I'm just going to be stuck here. That would be a bummer. This chapter of your life isn't the whole thing. Maybe you have other positives that have happened in the past that you can reflect on and realize, oh, this isn't the whole thing okay, there's more to this story. Maybe you can be hopeful about the future and you can say, I know even if things don't change, the Lord is with me. There's a flip side to this reality too. Maybe things are going super well and you can't think of really much that's going wrong or that you're having a hard time with. You know, things are going pretty smoothly, right? Now, this is not me getting all doom and gloom, okay, but... If we just thought that that was how life was going to be forever, we would be very, very disappointed. Because life changes. Stuff happens. Things don't go well all the time. And if we stop and we just think and assume that the way that life is going right now is going to be how it is forever, we're in for a very rude awakening. The through line for all of this no matter the circumstances, that the Lord was with Joseph. That is the through line. We can't expect really much else, but we know that the Lord will be with us. I cannot predict the future. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, 10 minutes from now, or any of that. What I do know is that God is here, and he's not far from any one of us. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the current chapter of your life is going to be your whole story. Look at what happens in Joseph's story next. This is an interesting another pattern that comes up. It says this. While Joseph was there in prison, ah, oh, look at that, the Lord was with him. <laughs> he showed him kindness. The word for kindness here is, has to do with loyal, covenantal love. It's like the same word that we would use to describe a marriage, for example. Loyal, choosing love. Showed him kindness. And granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. I'm getting flashbacks here. He was made responsible for all that was done there. 
The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Notice something about this. The only reason that Joseph can accomplish anything in, in any of this is because the Lord was with him. We're not doing it on our own. He's not doing it on his own. He's not just left by himself to try and navigate a world gone wrong. The Lord is with him. The Lord is the hero of the story. Joseph is heroic in many cases, right? But the Lord is the hero. He's the main reason that things start to go well. And ultimately, he's the author of Joseph's story. And he's the author of your story too. The only reason that anything ever happens that is like remotely positive in our lives is because the Lord is like creating something that's good and making it happen. Sometimes he uses people to do that and sometimes it just happens. And also, let's remember this. Specifically in Joseph's case, yeah, things seem like they're going a little bit better for him, but think about this. He's still in prison. He's still a prisoner. Just like in Potiphar's house, he had a lot of responsibility. He was still a slave. In this case, he had a lot of responsibility. Things are going well. The Lord's granted him favor. He's still a prisoner. The most lavishly decorated cell is still a cell. And his story isn't finished yet. His story is not done. Neither is yours. So don't make the mistake of believing that this chapter is your whole story. What would it be like if we started doing that? I think it, life would probably be a little bit more bearable for us. Let's pray.